You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Thank you. Y'all could have a, a seat. I'm a loud human being, and so if this gets louder, um, yeah, please forgive me. Uh, hey, I uh, glad to see y'all. Hope you are staying cool. It's actually pretty decently cool under that awning. It's much cooler than I thought it was going to be. Uh, we're having a bit of a stand issue right now, so if this looks awkwardly small in comparison to my person, um, it's you're not mistaken, uh, nor is it purposeful. Uh, it was just a little technical malfunction that uh, I personally don't think we're going to overcome by the end of this afternoon, so we're going to have to live with it. Um, yeah, I, I just want to start by saying thank you all for being here. I want to reiterate what Sean said. Uh, we deeply appreciate you spending your afternoon with us. I know that it can get warm. Uh, I know that that is a reality as we bring kids into uh, the space. We're in Texas. It, you know, I know that most of us have lived in Texas. If you're like me, you're a Texas baby. And so you know that it gets increasingly warm. Uh, and I want to reiterate Sean's request that you would join us in praying for a place where we can gather together. We know that that is actually uh, a large reason why uh, some families aren't able to come as often as they would like to, right? Is heat and babies and all these other things. And we want to create a space where we gather together uh, well and we gather together to worship and we're able to focus and, and, and to bring our attention uh, to worshiping and to praising God together. And that's our desire. So I want to reiterate to you um, that, man, even though we had a spot in terms of the, the local school, like one of the local schools, there's several around here, um, and we're hoping to get back in there as soon as they allow us to. Uh, until then, right, we would love to even find just a temporary place to gather together uh, to worship. And so be, please be praying for that. Join us in praying for that because uh, it's going to be uh, a joyous occasion to be able to get together. And I love being with you on Easter. All right, I love that. But can I be like 100 of the, I was a little like, oh, y'all are real close. All right? like, I was like, I loved it. But I was also like, man, we're a little tight in this bad boy right now. So we are absolutely praying um, and thankful to be able to have a space like this where we're able to, to get under awning. And um, my neck is going to get a little warm by the end of this afternoon. That's going to be all right and stay cool and all that good stuff. But please join us in praying for a space um, for us to gather. Now, uh, having said that, as mentioned, it's our time to dive into the Word. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Titus, uh, and it's just been a joy. Titus is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, over the last two weeks, we've learned primarily about what Paul has to say about the idea of transformation in the book of Titus, what the gospel does and how it transforms our hearts and our lives. In week one, we really introduced the book of Titus, but also introduced the island of Crete, where uh, the whole book is taking place. And it, the island of Crete, this Mediterranean island known for its indulgence, but also known uh, for its wealth and its violence, yet it's a place that Paul sees as ripe for the transforming work of the gospel through the planting of local churches. I want to say that again because I want you to connect the dots that, 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 that Paul is connecting uh, as you hear me. That in the midst of chaos and brokenness and struggle and heartache and pain, Paul says there's a solution for that. And the means by which the solution can arrive is through local churches being a part of that community. Right? And so we introduced two weeks ago the series really based on that idea. But, but last week, uh, we jumped into... Uh, Paul's uh, 
mission to Titus to establish leaders in the church, a.k.a. elders or local pastors. But hear me, from the Cretan congregation, from the Cretan congregation, from the same congregation that was made up of people that just a while back were going to be known to be uh, violent and indulgent and uh, kind of carnal, if that makes sense. If that's like a churchy word for you, it just means like doing whatever you want, right? Like, like that's what they were known for just a few weeks ago. And yet, when, Titus, when Paul writes to Titus, he says, hey, install elders, install leaders that come from that community. Because Paul knew that truth transforms The truth of the gospel transforms. It transforms lives and hearts and minds and actions, even in places like Crete, even amongst people like the Cretans. Now, this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to finish up Titus chapter 1. And like I said, I'm not going to lie. Titus is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If you go and find my Bible, you will find that probably the most markings in any book of the Bible in my Bible is in Titus. So we could probably break these five, like five or six verses up into like three or four sermons. We're going to try to knock it out in one, and we're going to try to do it in like 25 minutes, all right? Um, yeah, I've, I've said that before, I know, but we're going to try it, all right? Um, and as we jump in today, I want to start by asking you a question, all right? I want to start by simply asking you a question. And it's this, that if I told you I could give you the most precious and valuable gift in the world, something that brought you peace, and brought you joy, and changed your life, and renewed your mind, and brought you purpose, and brought you meaning, and healed so many things in your heart that you didn't know were even wrong. But, but, I also told you that when you receive that gift, you're going to be made aware that there are also enemies, enemies that desire to take that gift from you, to rob you of the joy, to rob you of the peace, to rob you of the purpose, to rob you of the change. And when you receive the gift and when you agree to take it, you're going to need to be aware. You're going to need to be cautious from that day on. Would you take the gift? That's my question. But I told you, like, yo, the gift is mad worth it, right? Like, it's amazing. The gift is, like, untouchable. Right? Would you take it? And I know that seems like an intimidating um, proposition, but, friends, I would, I would put before you that that's really exactly what we experience when we walk into Christianity. When we receive the faith that tells us that there is a sovereign, good, kind, and gracious God who we have been separated by, separated from through our own sin, yet he did not look at us with just that specific thing in mind, but rather met us with grace by sending his son in order to live the life that we couldn't live and die, the death that we should have died in our place to receive us back to himself so that all of his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his gentleness could be ours fully, right? We also become aware that there are enemies to our souls that desire to take, right, the joy and the peace and the comfort and the change and the transformation that that, that 
reality of the gospel produces in our lives. That enemies that desire to trap us and desire to trick us and desire to deceive us and put us in peculiar situations that are hard, that that's the reality we step into. And hear me, for some of us, we're thinking like, no, man, I'm good, I'm protected, right? Because you see, I know that I'm good from all those types of deceptions and all those types of tricks because I don't watch scary movies. And I don't celebrate Halloween. Because for you, the enemies of your soul are only the ones that go bump in the night. Right? And others of us think, oh, well, well you know, I'm, I'm good, bro, because, because really, I don't drink, I don't cuss. Uh, like, I, I, I don't watch R-rated movies. Like, you, you ain't going to catch me slipping because in, in your mind, the greatest enemies against your soul are the ones that come from the outside or inside the TV, maybe. Right? And some of us, I'm talking this stuff, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, bro, because I really don't even think about the idea that I could have enemies that are stacked up and formationed opposed to me that are seeking to take from me the things that God has done through all of this beautiful gospel business. You haven't really thought about that. And no matter which group you belong to out of those three or maybe another that I didn't even list. I I want to encourage you, if you fit into any one of those lists, then the enemies of your soul have you right where they want you. Friends, because it's when we are most sure that we're safe, whether through confidence or even through ignorance, is when we're actually the most vulnerable to these enemies. I want you to hear that again. It's when we think we're most safe that we're actually most vulnerable. But hear me, in today's text, although that can sound like a pretty precarious circumstance to be in, uh, in today's text, I believe that the Apostle Paul offers us a measure of hope, okay, a measure of hope by showing us this, that, that the very truth we fight for, hear me, the very truth that we fight for is also the truth that we fight with. Hear me again. The very truth that we fight for is also the very truth that we fight with. Meaning, the truth of the gospel, right, the truth of what we've laid out in the mercies and the graces and what God has done through Jesus on our behalf is not just the truth that transforms us and therefore the truth that we're clinging to and trying to protect. It's also the truth that we weaponize in order to defend ourselves from the very enemies that seek after us. So everything that you need in so many ways, friend, you do already have, but maybe just not quite in the way that you think. Um, I'm excited to jump into today. We're going to be in, again, Titus 10. Eileen read it. Uh, Titus, there's no Titus 10. There's definitely a Titus 1, 10 through 16, and that's where we're going to be camped out. But we're going to go ahead and jump in. I want to go ahead and read the first two verses. If you have your Bible, if you would read them with me, uh, it's going to be Titus 1, 10 and 11 reads like this, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. 
Okay, in today's text, when we jump in, uh, Paul uh, is really describing why he needed to install leaders in the text just before this, right? Last week, we went through uh, this list of, of requirements for elders and how Paul desired for Titus to install elders in the Cretan churches across the island. And there was a reason for it, right? Because there are actually uh, these individuals in Crete that are rebellious, not only are they rebellious, but they're, they're spewing off empty thoughts. And those empty thoughts are deceiving. In other words, there's people around the island of Crete that are speaking with, with so little actual wisdom, with, with so little truth, that when people accept it, the deception that's worked in their heart leads them to spiritual decline, not spiritual growth. Now, I don't know if you've ever come around any of these type of people in your life. But you can feel that reality of working through spiritual truths that someone says, hey, in fact, I'm not going to use any names. But I distinctly remember uh, in college sitting in a room at about 1230 a.m. with another guy uh, in a group of us. And that individual telling me something to the effect that I, I needed to pursue uh, what he described as mantles spiritually, things that I needed to pursue that could only be given from other people but couldn't be given to you directly from God. And he said, hey, I need you to stop here uh, because you've heard talk, but I'm going to teach you truth. I heard someone whistle. I agree. Right? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The fact that this individual looked at me and and really, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say spiritual mantles to pursue, trust me, I didn't know what he was talking about either. So this is the best I can give you because what he was describing to me was something I didn't know what he was saying. And he simply told me, God can't give them to you. You got to receive them from someone that you know. And, and in fact, you won't find this really in the Bible. Only I can give it to you, right? It doesn't lead to spiritual growth. Agreeing and taking hold of it would just lead to spiritual decline. These are the type of individuals that are rampant across uh, the island of Crete, so much so that Paul says they're really overturning entire households. They're overturning entire homes, right? If, if you would think of it like this, the ancient church didn't, didn't just meet in big groups, but, but really like in small groups, kind of like our church does like in the middle of the week or something, right? And, and these lies and deceptions were, were so wide that whole small groups, right, in a church were just getting flipped and turning from the Lord in favor of the deceptions, and, and we, we read in those first two verses that these rebellious people came from a certain group. That is the circumcision party. The circumcision party. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I know that may not necessarily, that just sounds like a weird party you ain't trying to go to, right? Like that's just like a weird get together where some things are going to happen where you're like, I'm, I'm trying to avoid that. But we know from the context of other parts of the Bible that the circumcision party was actually um, Jewish groups, not all Jews, but right, Jewish groups, maybe even Jewish Christians. Because by this time, the Jewish diaspora, that means that the, 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 the spreading of Jewish people across the ancient world was far-reaching. It had gone, in fact, there were large Jewish communities in pretty much every major city in the Roman Empire. And, and this was a double-edged sword for someone like Paul because the positive side was that that was really a foothold for the message of Jesus. 
right? Christianity had come out of Judaism. And as a result, when Paul went into any city and started talking about a Messiah, there was a group of people that were like, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Like, that's what I'm already expecting. That's what I already know. And as a consequence, I'm down to talk about that. So it was a foothold for the gospel right away into almost every major city. In fact, most scholars believe that this is one of the major contributions to Christianity spreading so rapidly and so broadly, right, across the Roman Empire. Because in almost any major city they went to, there was a constituency of Jewish people that could relate to the message of Jesus. Because he was the Jewish Messiah that had been spoken about through all the Bible, right? That's the, the positive side. But the negative side... All right, was it because early Christians, especially early Jewish Christians, were still trying to figure out, okay, what it would look like to be Christian, but not Jewish, or maybe Jewish and Christian, right? There, there was this confusion behind the, the, mail, the, the, the melting together of the two. Should, should Christians follow specific type of Jewish traditions? Should they, should they accept certain type of laws, maybe, as it pertained to eating or, or other things, right? And, and the deception took place when the laws of Judaism started to take the place of God's grace. And so these deceptions that are happening, that are leading people away from the gospel, leading people away from God, are actually the, the deceptions of the Jewish laws coming in and taking the place of God's goodness and grace and salvation. And while we don't know the exact issues that were covered, right, the exact issues that were happening, the, because of context, we hear about the circumcision party, this particular group of Jews across the Bible, Across the New Testament, well, you definitely hear about the Hebrew people across the Bible. But I mean, the circumcision party you hear about uh, in Galatians across the book of Acts. And so we can safely assume there were probably certain teachings on the table that were required by this party from the Christians. Right. There was obviously probably circumcision. That's probably a big deal. They're called the circumcision party, right? So I'm assuming that circumcision is a big deal when they're talking about Christian or faith practices. Other areas um, that concern of their concern would have been maybe like what people ate. I mentioned this, right? Jewish uh, eating customs were pretty intense. There was like no shellfish and no catfish. So all you Southerners, right? It, like a huge chunk of your a diet is just like out of the out of the cannon right away, right? And so there were these issues of what people were going to eat. And so all of these ideas together amount to a, a situation, an environment that probably went something like this. A, a, a member of the circumcision party, maybe from within the church, looks at you. You just came to faith and they say, hey, Jesus got you into the faith and that's good. But if you want to be a real Christian, you need to get circumcised. Hey, if you want to grow in your Christianity right, then you need to only eat these types of foods and you can't eat any other types of foods. If you want to stay a Christian, you need to observe this specific day of rest in this specific way. And if you don't, I can't promise you maybe that you'll even be a Christian at the end of the day. And this seems laughable to us when we talk about it in this environment, right? Like, we're out here wearing shorts and, like, I'm wearing a hat talking about Jesus and preaching. All right, this seems laughable to us in so many ways. But there's a lot of people that still think like this. In our world today, like right now, 
Right? There's people that think you can't eat certain things and that you do need to have specific physical alterations. And that women can't wear certain clothes or wear certain types of things or have certain types of earrings or makeup. Or, or even that if you don't read like the King James version of the Bible, that you're not a real Christian. Or if you don't have church on the right day, that you are not a real Christian and follower of Jesus. Yeah, all those people out there that seem to believe crazy things. But the reality, friends, is not just them. It's all also the people right here. It's also us. And right now you may be like, well, what do I believe is that crazy? But, but it's us as well. Whether you know it or not, we do this too. Okay, we, we say things like, well, I, I can't drink, I can't smoke or cuss, and, and that'll mean that I'm a good Christian. Right? We, we say things like, well, I don't, I don't road rage like I used to. Right? <laughs> and I hope I'm hitting somebody right now because I know I'm hitting me. All right? Right? I, don't, I don't rage when someone cuts me off the way I used to. That means I'm a good Christian. The moment I do it, though, I'm like, dang, I'm a bad Christian. And it's not just negative things. It could be helpful things, right? I, I don't judge others. I, I don't cheat others. We create in our minds these lists of things, these lists of bad things that we're not allowed to do. Right? So that we can know in our own mind, in our own heart, I've done enough. I'm, I'm good enough. I have confidence. If I can just navigate all these bad things, then I have done enough. And hear me, that's just the list of bad things. Then we have the list of good things. Because in addition to not cussing and not doing this and not doing that and, and not, you know, road raging and not X, Y, and Z, I also have to read my Bible every day or maybe at least this many times a week, right? I need to do that too. That's the good side of the list. If there's a bad side of the list of things I can't do, there's a good side of the list as well because now I need to read my Bible this many times or maybe when I pray, I need to do it in this specific way or I need to do it this many times a week or, or this many times a day. I, I need to definitely go to small group. That will definitely help me. That makes me a good, like, what kind of Christian to go to small group? I, I gotta go to church and I really got to go to church. Like, that's a serious big one, right? Like, I got to be there, right? Like, like, that's a really big, I need to do, that's a yes list thing, right? Or maybe I need to be in discipleship. I need to give money or a specific type or a specific amount, hopefully it's USD, uh, but a specific amount of money, right? That type of thing. I need to be nice, be responsible. If I can do these things, then I'm good. At the end of the day, I can lay my head on my pillow and know that me and God, we're good. We're good. And friends, if we're to believe what Paul is saying in this text, all the while we think we're doing good, our hearts are drifting farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. Because in that moment, there's no affection for this Jesus, right? There, there's no affection for this God. My version of Christianity that started with me seeing the beauty and the splendor of God's grace and love and compelled me to say, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but I'm, I want to follow you and I want to give my, my life to you, slowly becomes distorted in this way that starts to become less about this Jesus and more about this me. 
Because if my Christianity is more about the things that I don't do that are bad, but the things that I do do that are good, and if I can do all these things perfectly, then at the end of the day, right, I rest my head on the pillow and we're good. It's not about Jesus. It's about me being the best version of me that I can be. I don't necessarily want to be more like Jesus. I just want to be the best version of me. I love the idea of me, not road, I don't know why I'm like banging on the road raging thing, but like me not road raging or me not cussing or me not drinking or me not doing this or me actually being a good Christian reading my Bible and me going out and praying or me, right, like going out and, and sharing my faith. When I came to faith, and some of you have heard this story, uh, I, I would say like about a year afterwards, I read the Bible a handful of times in that first year. I was, I was a reader, more of a reader back then than I am now, but uh, I read the Bible a couple of times, and my response was, y'all, I'm supposed to share my faith. That seems like what the people in the Bible do. It's like they come to Jesus, they get this beautiful thing, and they're like, I need to go share my faith. So in my mind, I said, you know what? 25 people a day, that seems right. That seems like a radical response. Like these dudes are dying. Like I can, I'm not going to die. But I can at least talk to 25 people a day about Jesus. I can at least do that. And so I would set out on the Texas State campus and be like, hey, hey, can I pray for you? And I got told expletive off so many times you do not want to know. But I kept it up. And then there would be days when I had like a test and I had to run. I had to go take it. And all of a sudden I, had, I did like maybe I did 19 that day. And I would get home that night and just be so filled with this deep sense of like, oh, man, God is disappointed in me. My heart in those moments, even at that young, tender Christian age of just a year into my faith, right? It wasn't longing anymore to be like the one that I loved, the one that I worshipped, or the one that I idolized, the one that I admired. At that point, so much of my heart was just about me being the best version that I could be. I just wanted to be an acceptable version of me to God. That was my desire. If I could talk to those 25 people a day, that would make me an acceptable version of Josh to God. And friends, right now, just me saying it, it may seem like that doesn't seem that bad. But friends, this right here, this is deadly. This is deadly. Because with each action, I begin to make the case before God that I myself am worthy and acceptable, pushing away the grace, pushing away the mercy, pushing away the person of Jesus in favor of my own acceptableness, my own perfection, my own quality, my own goodness that I can present before God and say, hey, I did pretty good today. We're squared, right? Right, like I'm, I'm lovable and acceptable and good today, right? And if Hebrews 12 is right, a text that says that Jesus is actually the author, that's the starter, and the perfecter, a.k.a. the finisher and continuer, right, of our faith, then in my life, less of him in favor of more of me doesn't lead to spiritual growth. That actually leads to spiritual death. Because if he is the one that's going to sustain my faith, 
If he's the one that's going to grow my faith, if interacting with Jesus is the means by which my faith and my spiritual life grows, then any moment of my life that I begin to push away grace, mercy, and goodness, and affection, and worship of this Jesus in order to say, why don't you look at me for a second, is the moment my faith begins to lose the very thing that brings it life. And friends, this all builds together. This all builds together to help us see that oftentimes, and for the Cretans, this was true. And hear me, whether we know it and even agree to this, whether or not that happens, it's probably true for us that the greatest enemy to our souls is often not the one that goes bump in the night, nor is it the one that we find inside or on the TV, but it's more than likely the one that we find inside of ourselves. Right? You and me. You and me are oftentimes the most dangerous enemy to our own spiritual walk. The one that never escapes us. The one that tells us little by little and increasingly subtly, you know what, man, you're doing pretty good. You know what, girl, you're doing pretty good. And whether you know it or whether you don't, that little voice that goes, man, you probably don't need him as much today. Because you, you killed it today. It's that little lie that drives us farther and farther away and leaves our faith more emaciated and emaciated every day as well. And friends, hear me. I'm not telling you, you do this. I'm shocked at how much I find myself in this exact situation. Falling into this exact, exact trap over and over again, like on the same things. Like, that's what's crazy. It's not like I, like, I, I kill one and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm good, bro. Like, I'm never going to think about that in that area again. It seems like it happens all the time, especially with good things. Especially with good things. And that seems like it's the least, the, the lesser of the two evils. But hear me, friends, it's probably the more dangerous of the two. Right? And I always use this example for me. But, man, y'all, like, for real, when it comes to reading my Bible, I fall into this trap like, I feel like I'm waging this war like every single week, if I'm being honest, right? Like so often I go to read my Bible as in, in this disposition of what I ought to do, right? Like I ought to read my Bible. This is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to open it and I want to tell him, Lord, speak something to me so I can like grow and, and do good. And then like I'm going to go like shoot off and have a great rest of the day, right? Like spiritually pumped up and all that good stuff. Uh, in other words, I, I approach the scriptures like, like at times with this sense of duty, not this sense of intimacy. Right? I, I, I approach these moments believing that Christ needs me to do this or that in order to continue pushing me forward instead of approaching, me, approaching the moment with this deep desire to meet with God. To just spend time with him. To hear him. And to pray that my spirit and his spirit fellowship in that moment. And that the, use, the, the most useful and beautiful thing that I can have in those 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes is not that I have some spiritual nugget that I can drop in my Bible study two days later, but that my heart and spirit would have been in fellowship and in the presence of God to renew me and to strengthen the faith that only he can give a life to. Right? That's oftentimes missing in those moments. 
I, I like to think of this, friend, as I, I oftentimes come to the table, and if you're honest, you probably oftentimes come to the table with checkbox Christianity, right, instead of relational intimacy. And we believe that, oh, if I can just checkbox Christianity my way into relational intimacy, that's how. Right, I can become closer to God when, when in reality, Scripture over and over again points us to saying the way you draw close to God is by recognizing that there's only one means to get to God and is to rely on that Jesus. Because the checkbox version of Christianity, friends, it doesn't change us. It may make you act different. It may help you build a good routine that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable, that makes me feel a little bit more satisfied. But checkbox check Christianity does very little to change the heart of a person. Right? It just leaves us kind of where we are. Um, but Paul has a pretty beautiful solution to this, friends. Check this out. This is where we're going to turn the corner and finish here. If you want to, I hope you do, if you have your Bible, let's read the last couple of verses here, starting in verse 12, because Paul has a solution. This may not be the solution we think we need. In verse 12, it says, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. Paul's solution to this checkbox Christianity is rebuke them. Rebuke them. If that's not like far away from our modern day understanding of like, you know, because usually what you, what you would expect out of like our modern day understanding church is like, yeah, go encourage them that they have the wrong identity. And that the right identity to see themselves as a daughter. And Paul's like, no, you need to go and strongly rebuke those types. Rebuke them. Maybe not everyone. I'm not saying that every person that is in that trap should be rebuked. But, but when you got these specific type of people that maybe come from a culture where they think they're a little bit better than they, they really are, maybe you should go and rebuke a Cretan. Maybe you should go and rebuke them. Right? And, and I know this might not make sense, but give me a second. In love, in love, you can rebuke them, Titus. Right? Be, remind them of the words in Isaiah 64, 6 that say, all of us have become like something unclean and all of our righteous acts are like polluted garments. Remind them, Titus, of, of verses like Romans 3, right? That say, as it is written, uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. Remind them, Titus, that from the beginning, right, the rescue plan of God for their lives was never about them, but was always a built on God's loving us despite us, not because of us. Right, that there was never going to be anything that stirred God's heart to go, man, they are really doing that, and that actually is what makes me love them. It was always going to be, I have elected to love you, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But Titus, go ahead and go rebuke them. It was never going to be about how much we did to approve or how much we did to earn but understanding every nook and every cranny of where we failed so that we can see the grace of God at work in our lives. Because Paul knew 
that when we understand, uh, sorry, 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 that when we understand we've been fully known, hear me, when we understand we've been fully known, right, from the top to the bottom, from the brightest side to the darkest side, from the most beautiful side to the one that you sincerely hope no one sees, in that moment is when you understand how fully loved you actually are. Outside of that moment, you can never understand that truth. As long as, you under, as long as you're under the perception that there is something about you that can be loved more or less depending on what you do, the amount that you are loved will never ever capture the soul of your, your being and, and leave you in worship and in awe and, in, and just in love with God. It'll never happen. There will always be a tit-for-tat checkbox game and there will never be a moment where you look and say, God, I don't know what you did to love me, but the beauty of it leaves me melted and all I want now is you. That doesn't happen. And so Paul's idea was rebuke them. Rebuke them. Show them that there's nothing good there, but remind them that in the midst of nothing good being there, that God stepped into the darkness in order to live the life they couldn't live, to live the life we couldn't live, and to die for those trespasses so that we could come to know him, right? Remember, teach them those words, and it might sting. It might sting. But it reminds me of Proverbs 27 that says, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses, hear me, the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Friend, I want to simply finish today by asking you a question that I think Titus would have asked so many of the Cretans themselves, which is like, where are the lies that you're building your identity on? Where are the lies that you're building your value on? What are the things that you do in your life or the things that you refrain from doing in your life that you begin to build this sense of value and worth upon, believing in your mind, hey, these are the things I need to do in order to continue and persevere instead of the reality that the only means by which I persevere is by clinging to the one that my heart, my soul, my faith desperately needs and without whom it perishes. Right? What lies are... are what lies are the Jenga blocks, right, building on that one day get pulled out and everything comes crashing down? Where are those for you? And hear me, friend. When you're confronted with those lies, when you're working through them and they show their, their face and they come in and say, hey, here I am. If you just do this, if you don't do this, and they come back and continue to whisper, remember that you have a weapon. That you have a weapon. It's the truth that, that when we were still far off, that God saved us. Right? That when you were still far off. When obedience, affection, love, worship was something far from your mind, when the worship of your heart went a million miles in a different direction, when your obedience went a million miles a different direction, right? When you did all the things you think you can do in order to be right with God, when all that was on the table, there was a God that looked at you and said, I want her. I want him. And I'm willing to lay down my life for them. Right? That truth comes in and begins to ravage those lies to tear them down and to invite us back to building our identity not on what we've done but on an identity that's strong 
right? This idea of Christ's affection and grace. Where are we at here? Okay, I'm gonna leave it there. There was one more point down there, but as many of pastor friends have told me, sometimes you gotta leave the last point off. But if, uh, if you wanna know it, you can email me. Friends, today you have uh, a weapon. There are enemies to your soul, 100%. There are enemies, and the most dangerous one is the one that you can never escape from. But yet the truth, not of who you are, but the truth of who God is, in his mercy and in his grace, right? These are the means by which Paul knew, and he shared with Titus to share with the church. These are the means, the truth of what he's done because of who he is, the affection he has for us, not because of us, but because of who he is, right? These are the means by which godliness actually grows in us. Not who we are, but who he is. That's the weapon you have today. The weapon you have today is God's own character at work in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you for the reality of grace and mercy that showers us whether we deserve it or whether we don't, Father. Uh, I ask, Father, that in this time, uh, that if your spirit desires to convict, um, that you would also allow us to see the truth of grace and mercy that comes with conviction. That even in the moments when you spur us to do better, it's not because you spur us to earn more, but rather that you spur us to be who you've made us to be, to live the life that you paid for on the cross in order to draw us to know you and worship you. You desire not to draw us farther away, but to draw us closer to you in order for us to grow into your likeness. Thank you for that truth, Father. Help us uh, continue to grow in that knowledge and in that truth through this book. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 